Hello and welcome back to Season 2 of Cooking the Books with Jilly Smith, the podcast for food book lovers where food is the story. This week we're off to Nairobi and London to the homes and memories of chef and food writer Ravinda Bogle. Ravinda is an award-winning food writer, a journalist, a stylist and made her first TV appearance on The F Word when she won a competition in search of the new Fanny Craddock, judged by Gordon Ramsay and Angela Hartnett. But it's the stories from her Kenyan childhood in her new book, Jaconi, named after her central London restaurant, packed with what she calls proudly inauthentic recipes from an immigrant kitchen that make up the four food moments that take us back to Nairobi in the early 80s. I remember the staccato of their dusty sandals clip-clopping across the pistachio green terrazzo floor, their smell of dough and fried onions, the warmth of their cotton salvars, their kurtas salty with perspiration. I caught up with her remotely and asked her how her restaurant had been faring since lockdown. Well, I haven't really stopped since lockdown, really. And I think that is part of the madness of being uh, someone who works in hospitality. You just have bags of energy and you need a bit of structure. You need things to focus on. So a couple of weeks after lockdown started, my husband and I decided that we had a perfectly good kitchen at Jaconi and it should be put to use. So we started um, cooking, first of all, for King's College Hospital. So I have a personal link because I have a friend there who's a doctor um, who I went to university with. And he, you know, just hearing what they were going through was awful. And his uh, wife had set up this thing called NHS Wellness Box. And they were gathering, you know, toothpaste, toothbrushes, hand creams, that sort of thing. So I said, look, do they need hot food? And she just said, oh, my God, yes. Um, So we couldn't get our team in just because it was unsafe to travel on public transport. So the two of us, husband and wife, went in a couple of times a week and prepared these meals. And uh, it was a real test of my marriage, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so he doesn't cook but he does you know a fantastic uh, role as a KP um, and uh, we made it work and then as soon as Kings was stable we then sort of pivoted and decided that we would partner with uh, Nishkam Swat who do uh, food for the homeless Um, and, and we started cooking for them and it's been such a wonderful partnership it's so inspiring what they do I mean we talk about operational challenges of running restaurants and what they do operationally is just breathtaking. Yeah, I mean, the thing about the, the stuff that you're talking about, Ravinda, it's so I'm hearing so many times from different people who have restaurants, they're using their kitchens properly, they're pulling stuff out of the bag, aren't they? I mean, who would have thought that lockdown could show us our more conscious selves absolutely Uh, the food industry has pulled together like few other industries i think um actually people who enter this hospitality industry it's somehow entrenched and ingrained in us because hospitality in its basic form is that it's a giving of yourself um and when you do it well it is exactly that you know you may have paying customers or paying guests or whatever but actually even beyond that you are giving part of yourself And, you know, it's an act of love. And I think it it does not surprise me when I see my colleagues and, you know, people in in the industry that I know who've come forward and done extraordinary things. And I feel very, very proud at this moment to be part of this industry. 
Well, you're feeders, yes, aren't you? And, and and very much what you what you write about in your book is how you become a feeder. Let's go to your book. It's a it's a wonderful story. It's it's deliberately inauthentic, which I love. You know, you are self confessed. What is authenticity? There is no such thing. You are an amalgam of all the things, all the stories, all the people that made you you. Absolutely, and that's what this book is about. Let's start with that notion of authenticity. What does it mean to you? I mean, authenticity, I've just found it's so restrictive. It's such a nosebleedy sort of word. Um, And, you know, it can only ever be subjective. Now, if you were to travel from London to Glasgow and ask 50 women how they made their Yorkshire pudding, you're just going to get a different recipe every time. You know, my grandmother's experience is different from your grandmother's experience. So, of course, it's going to be different. And I think particularly in the case of immigrants, you know, (laughs) you're moving through so many landscapes and you do not have what you had in your old nation and you are having to be resourceful and make do and reinvent and and I think you know how can you possibly be questioned about authenticity and actually whenever I have cooked I never really ask the question what makes it authentic what I ask is what makes it delicious and that is the important thing to me. Having said that, the, the the authenticity comes from the story. So perhaps it's about an individual sense of authenticity. It's a bit about being true to who you are. Absolutely, and, I agree. And I think that perhaps in your first food moment, the Samosa Sisterhood is exactly that. I mean, I think all your food moments bring out that sense of who you are brilliantly. But the Samosa Sisterhood is great because it's it's very much about you as a little girl growing up in Nairobi, surrounded by your aunties. T- tell us a little bit about what what you were trying to do by that little essay. There's these lovely essays throughout the book that really bring your life to life. Tell us about that one. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I just remember, and actually I was on Instagram writing about it this morning because I had written an essay actually for a magazine, Harper's Bazaar, and it was this about this very idea of women cooking communally and what that meant and what that did for them. Um, And... You know, I remember as a child sort of skipping a rope and, you know, running around and causing havoc and getting in their way and just being so loved and feeling so indulged by them. And, you know, one of my deep regrets is not paying attention to the things that they were doing, you know, or writing down what they were doing. I mean, I was only little. Um, But there are so many things that have been buried in my sort of garden of forgotten memories and lost tastes, if you like. Um, And these women were just incredible, the way they pulled together and and sort of had these mass communal cookery days. And but in it, there was a form of uh, therapy, if you like, you know, because they didn't have the space outside of that to go and see a therapist or talk to people about what their day-to-day problems were. But there was a sort of safe circle to, um, you know, confide in. And that's what I remember is the love and the friendship between these women and their incredible uh, characters, how inspiring they were. Um, you know, I just, I mean, I, I am almost, uh, you know, moved to tears when I think about them. And so many of them have gone. And, you know, we say that when a woman like that dies with all this knowledge, it's like a library burning down. It really is. And 
I, I just want to, you know, note down and have as many stories written down as I possibly can. And I think this, in a way, this book is also about self-preservation. Yes, absolutely. Let's hear some of it. In my memory, these aunties are like flickering fragments of female spirit, a sort of pageant of womanhood. They would tussle my hair playfully and pull at my cheeks adoringly. I loved them all. I remember the staccato of their dusty sandals clip-clopping across the pistachio-green terrazzo floor, their smell of dough and fried onions, the warmth of their cotton salvars, their kurtas salty with perspiration. One auntie had a face as round as an O, large, kind eyes lined with cow-like eyelashes and a strong upper body with muscly arms, no doubt built from decades of kneading dough. She wore gold bangles that jangled as she chased the dough around a large metal bowl with the heel of her hand, thwacking it contentedly once it was as smooth and springy as a baby's bottom. Another had a gleaming silver hair pulled back into a neat chignon at the nape of her neck. She wore ebony-rimmed glasses that magnified her eyes to cartoonish proportions. Her yellow-gold matermala suited her aristocratic demeanour as she reclined aloof on a chair, swatting away flies with, a, with quick swipes of her small, henard, work-shy hands. It's a wonderful read. You write very beautifully. And I wonder, you know, you go on into the next paragraph to talk actually about loneliness. You were the youngest of uh, how many siblings? Four sisters. Uh, I was the younger sister and then there was a brother after me. But you were quite a lot younger than the next one up, weren't you? And there was this sense yes. that you were surrounded by family, yet you were very much alone. And I wonder when I have this vision of a little girl watching all this happen and the world is happening in your head as well. And imagination tends to grow from solitude. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, my sisters always say this, they're like, you know, you have such a vivid imagination. And my husband says things to me like, how on earth do you remember that? You know, I was talking to him the other day about this memory I have of drinking from a milk bottle. And I mean, they'd like everyone would frown at this nowadays, but it was this milk bottle and I used to have warm milk and my mom would put sugar in the milk. <laughs> it's <a> terrible. <laughs> And, you know, I'd lie on this yellow kind of, uh, you know, canvas chair. It was a bright yellow canvas chair. I loved lying on that chair and drinking from this bottle of milk. And then one day my grandmother bought in this bottle with this what looked like a millipede or something inside it. And they were trying to wean me off. And after that, I never drank from that milk bottle again. Um, but, you know, I just have these memories and I must have been about three. And he's like, I, I don't remember anything from like, you know, maybe when I was six years old or seven, but I don't remember these things. And I think Kenya is so bewitching. It is so sprawling and open and magical. And yes, this, this, you know, loneliness and sort of having to entertain yourself, um, 
fires your imagination in a way and you just remember things much much more vividly and and particularly because it was so ruptured as well by coming to a completely different environment in Britain when you were what seven years old seven yeah I was a child from an army background and I remember things very well because I had a rupture every three years you know so from yeah Wales to Malaysia Malaysia to Germany and and I think that those you know very very different uh, moments in your upbringing give you a sense of, of, of memory that is quite different to other people's. Take us to that moment. It's not one of your food moments, actually, but just tell us how it felt to come to Britain, age seven, from such an extraordinary environment oh. in Kenya. I mean, I talk about this a little bit in the introduction, but yes, it was a real shock to the system. And I think my parents, for whatever reason, didn't actually tell us we were going to be living in England. Um, so we, you know, visited England many times. And, you know, it was this sort of merry-go-round of sort of, you know, uh, metal biscuit tins and Fortnum & Mason and all these wonderful images. But when we came here, things were quite different. And suddenly I found myself living above this shop in this tiny what I can only now, you know, sort of call a squat. It was it was not nice. There was no central heating. It was winter. Um, you know, t times were really tough for my parents. Um, it was challenging. It was alienating. It was lonely. It was scary. I didn't fit in. My accent was different. I looked different. Um, I bitterly missed my grandmother and all the things the precious things that we'd left behind you know the sort of sprawling um sort of landscape and you know guava trees and jaman trees in the garden and you're suddenly in this very haggard urban landscape and you know it's so unsettling i i think at that point i became a warrior I was so unsettled by this whole thing that I just, you know, transferred every terrible thing that was happening on the news and the sort of hushed arguing of my parents' voices onto my shoulders. And I actually, I think I was very, very sad. It, you know, the, the, the way that you tell the stories is full of um, pictures. I can see the pickle maker. Take us to this wonderful old woman uh, who is your second food moment. Yes, it's one of my favourite memories, actually. Why did you choose this woman? There must have been so many extraordinary women who you remember, people, I suppose, from, from your background, from your childhood. Why the pickle maker? I think uh, what always remains is the love and the kindness that people show you, especially when you're a child. And she just showed me remarkable kindness and it stayed with me. And she just became these kind of, like I said, a, a sort of fragment, fragment of womanhood that just sort of floats around in my head when I think about these incredible women. And actually, for me, when I'm at the pass at my restaurant and I'm having a particularly tough day, and I think about these women, I feel bolstered. I feel bolstered by their spirit. And Giacconi has always been that. It's been a love letter to these women. And yeah, that, that's tell, what it is. Tell us about this extraordinary woman. So read us from, from the beginning. Okay, so the pickle maker. 
The entrance to the bungalow where the Acharwali lived was always difficult to get to on account of the two feral white geese she kept for security in lieu of guard dogs. There'd been a mongrel once, but he had proved puny and insignificant, nothing more than a soppy bundle of caramel-coloured fur. So now she had these twin shadows, Sita and Gita, vicious and territorial, pecking everything in their wake. The Acharwali, who we called Masi out of respect, was a widow and lived alone. Her bungalow was in creaking disrepair. The dusty, uncared-for veranda was empty apart from a washing line bent under the weight of several drying dupattas and a white goat tethered to a tree. She had no funds to fix it up or to move as her only income came from making pickles and chutney. Nearing 80, she still had pale, youthful, liquid eyes and an abundance of grey, chameli-scented hair, which she kept tied in an unfussy knot at the nape of her neck. As a child, she'd received no formal education, but when her husband died, she taught herself enough basic arithmetic to set up a little business that earned her just enough profit to keep her out of a pickle. She lived frugally but independently, As the demand for her wares grew in the city, she became astute, tenacious and emancipated, decades ahead of the many younger women, like my mother, who were her customers. So your mother was one of her customers, and on Sunday afternoons you would go and see the Achawali. And she couldn't hear you. You had to throw stones at her her and and attract her attention somehow in order to get in. (laughs) But, But once you tasted those pickles... Yeah, I mean, they're just extraordinary, the taste of home for me. And, you know, pickles are always seen as this sort of uh, side dish that sort of uh, is supposed to enhance the flavour of what you're eating. But for me, they were very much the main event, and particularly these sort of lime pickles which she made, which just struck that balance between sweet and sour so fantastically. Like, I mean, you know, she was like an acrobat, (laughs) You know, when it came to the balance of these spices and ingredients, um, it was just so perfect. Um, and, you know, I have never since tasted pickles like hers and they've gone with her. And I find that so sad. Um, but every time I make pickle, I think about her. And you think about her because you're an entrepreneur and she was an entrepreneur. She was an extraordinary entrepreneur. She, she had to become an entrepreneur because of her circumstance. But you say that, you know, it's the memory of this woman that has inspired you. Yeah, I mean, you know, she was so astute. And I think she put many of those sort of uh, top businessmen in Kenya to, to shame <laughs> because she knew what she was doing. And what I loved particularly was her sort of a uh, very kind of, elegant um, persuasion to to her customers, the way she'd lay things down like bait for you to taste. <laughs> and you, you always bought, you know, you just couldn't help yourself because she just had this sort of very gentle way of persuading you. You know, she was an excellent saleswoman. Pickles are something that a lot of particularly poorer people have made forever it's a way of using waste not letting anything go and storing stuff for the the hungry gaps it's something that has definitely come from all the wonderfully diverse communities that have made their homes in britain over the you know hundreds of years how do you think that the influence of your particular cuisine has has enhanced 
what is becoming a sort of more of a, a wide ranging British sense of taste? Well, I think, you know, actually what what British food is the, these days in itself is such a complicated question um, because I think the influence of immigrants has been like, uh, you know, those hummingbirds that sort of come in and they they suck the nectar out of those luscious flowers, yet they, they pollinate them at the same time. And I think that is the richness of what we do as immigrants is that we take from our new nation. And yet we overlay that with our culinary traditions uh, from f- that we become very precious about. You know, I am so precious about my culinary heritage and all the tricks and tips that I learned from my grandmothers and aunts and sisters and, you know, all these wonderful women. But I overlay them with what I've learned here or what happens to be available to me. Um, and growing up in a place that was, uh, you know, very immigrant heavy, you kind of end up shopping at all these sort of uh, mini economies of immigrants, whether it's, you know, a Chinese supermarket or a Turkish supermarket or whatever it is. So there there then comes this wonderful mix. And I think that is what immigrant food is. It's the preservation of your old traditions overlaid with the traditions of your new nation. And that newness, I think, is magical. So do I. And that's an extremely good way of explaining it. And I noticed that when you were writing about Kedgeri, for example, you don't uh, respond to the colonising kind of idea of the British. That's a different kind of overlaying as well, isn't it? So the colonising, the taking by force is a very different uh, way of bringing your cultural ideas to somebody else's cuisine. Yeah. Tell tell me a little bit about your antipathy towards what the British did with Kedgeri. I think, you know, um, I think it's fine. We, we we talk about sort of cultural appropriation in food. And I think you just, you know, things are so mixed. You have to think, where do things come from? You know, like I wrote a piece a few years ago in praise of the sort of beautiful mongrel culture that we have created here in Britain. And I, you know, I think that's what makes Britain great, actually, is that, willingness to adopt other people's ideas but I think it should always be credited in in a respectful way it should always be honored there should always be a nod to it you should always talk about it in context from where it came from and I think if you're doing that that's fine but if you're just doing it for commercial gain or doing it forcefully or not giving back to those communities who you've taken from then then it feels very wrong yeah. And I think that, you know, you, the way that you talk about it coming from love, from family, from uh, from people who have inspired you, uh, it, it takes us naturally onto your f- third food moment, actually. But that is the difference, isn't it? It's the difference between cultural appropriation and love. Let's talk about that in context of your third food moment, the glee in ghee, <laughs> the story about your grandmother. Yes. The glee in ghee. It was my grandmother who bought most of the household groceries when I was growing up in Kenya, partly because she held the family purse strings, but mainly because she could stretch a shilling like nobody else. She would waddle between shops in the heat, huffing and puffing, her body heavy from excessive lunches and long naps in the hot afternoons. She'd compare prices and strategize before undercutting feeble shopkeepers to purchase 
burlap sacks of rice and lentils, fat rolls of spinach and fenugreek, foot-long bars of sunlight soup and primrose-coloured pats of butter to make the most valued commodity, ghee. According to my grandmother, ghee was more than just clarified butter. It was a precious elixir, the food of the gods. Food cooked in ghee was far superior to food cooked in oil, and beyond the kitchen, it also served as a miracle worker, improving the intellect, aiding digestion, healing cuts and burns, and soothing inflammations. She was convinced that her consumption of it during her pregnancies was the reason she'd been able to produce four strapping ghee-fed male heirs. If you had told her ghee could make the blind see, she wouldn't have balked. Her regard for it verged on the reverential. <laughs> Did her reverence stretch to your reverence? Did you keep it going when you came here? <laughs> I do love ghee. I mean, you know, when I make things like burratas, I always use ghee. I mean, the flavour of um, using ghee, again, even when you're tempering your spices, uh, spices tempered in ghee you know do you just have this kind of melting richness at the base of what what you're making that is so wonderful and uh, having you know like when I do my sort of tempering of spices for my dal and ghee my husband can tell when it's oil and when it's ghee there's just something about it and you know that's, that's the whole thing it's butter and ghee are just such precious commodities and for years, you know, as when I started making dals and things like that, keeping my mother's sort of cooking traditions alive, I wondered why my dal never tasted as good as hers. And it's only years later that I discovered it was just the unconscionable amounts of butter <laughs> she whipped into the dal that made it so delicious. Um, so, so yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of ghee and that sort of tradition of making ghee at home. It's that whole thing about slow, slow food, slow cooking. I just love all of that. That you have to be patient with it. You can't rush it. You have to also be very intuitive. You know, to to know when it's when it's done, and um, you know the smell of it filling the house and everything as well. And I just have so many wonderful memories. And when I was writing this chapter, I actually spoke to my mother and um, we lived in this huge extended family home uh, with, you know, there was my sort of nuclear clan, not not so small, but, you know, six of us, my grandparents, and then my aunt, her husband, her two children, then, you know, chickens, you know, cats, dogs, you name it. It was their parrot that never stopped talking. Um, and so, you know, when they made ghee at, in the house, they used it for everything. And it would come like they would buy huge, uh, I've called them betis. They were like 40 pats of butter that weighed about half a kilo each. And they would light a charcoal fire in the courtyard uh, on a jiko, uh, which is a, like a little Kenyan stove, outdoor stove. And they'd balance this huge pot and then in would go, you know, these pats of butter. And um, my grandmother would sort of be watching that no one, you know, made off with the butter, um, jealously sort of guarding it. And then, you know, my mom would have to come and sort of keep turning and making sure that it wasn't, you know, burning and keeping the temperature correct. And um, 
One day she must have been distracted, she told me, and uh, she heard my grandmother, who was this real sort of brute in a way, you know, screaming and shouting and swearing from the courtyard, and the ghee had basically <laughs> boiled over. And it reminds me of that story, you know, the porridge story of this this woman who just couldn't <laughs> stop the porridge cooking, and this ghee is just started going all over the courtyard. Um, and my mom came running, you know, terrified of my grandmother and ran to the rescue, slipped in the ghee, fell, you know, like flat, rolling around in ghee. And I just, you know, when I think about that, it's just uh, so funny. And, you know, for my grandmother, it was very much like someone's <laughs> evil eye had been on the ghee, which is why it had spoiled, which is why it had been ruined. And I love that kind of ritualistic, you know, superstitious side of yeah. her. And, you know, we haven't really talked very much about Kenya at all, actually, but you do bring a lot of your Kenyan character into the book as well. And I'm wondering about that superstition. Was that an Indian superstition or was that a Kenyan superstition? I know it came from your grandmother, but yeah, I think it was very much an Indian superstition. There's very much this this thing of, um, you know, the evil eye. We call it nazar, looking at things the wrong way. And sometimes you can even give someone a compliment, but you might have a little bit of resentment or, you know, hunkering jealousy when you give that compliment. And then they say, oh, then the child becomes sick or like, you know, the cat dies or yeah. <laughs> whatever nonsense it is. But that's a very um, African it, thing it, as well. And I'm just wondering what you picked up from, from you living in Kenya that you have very much kept in your life. What have I kept alive? Oh, my God. I mean, part of those superstitions, like I drive my team in the kitchen absolutely mental because I will not take a knife from anyone. If someone tries to pass me anything sharp, it could be scissors, it could be a knife, it could be a blunt butter knife. I will not take it from them. They have to place it down on a surface and then I will pick it up. <laughs> um, so in our culture, they say very much if you um, swap sharp things with someone, you will also exchange sharp words. And no one in my kitchen wants sharp words from me, I can tell you that. <laughs> Let's go to your final food moment, the audacity of rasgullas. A rasgulla is what? So rasgulla is a, is a sweet dish. Um, it comes from uh, Bengal, um, but it's eaten all over India. And it's basically made out of paneer, which is like a sort of ricotta, if you like. Uh, which is hung and then it's sort of kneaded, uh, turned into little balls, uh, like little dumplings, and then it is simmered in a sugar syrup. And it takes on the sweetness of that sugar syrup and then we chill it down and we eat that. And it's it's so refreshing. And for me, the you know, I, I like taking those traditional recipes and adding something new to them. And so for me, my favorite pudding, uh, you know, the, the thing I can never say no to on a menu is tiramisu. I absolutely love it. Um, so these rasgullas are inspired by a tiramisu. So it's a, it's a coffee rasgulla. So I, I make the same, make them the same way, but I sort of soak them and simmer them in a, an espresso syrup. And then they're served with a mascarpone ice cream and an espresso caramel. And 
it, it's like, you know, two of my favorite things, rasgullas and tiramisu coming together in a very happy marriage. The sweetness of the rasgullas serves a very different purpose because this woman is uh, a newly bereaved widow. Why do you not tell us who she is? It is deliberate, actually. And I think, you know, I want to respect uh, people's privacy, but I also think she that she represents many women. She wasn't the only one who who went through this story. And um, I think in a way it talks about, yeah, so many women from that generation and, and even now who go through this. Give us a little bit of it. The Audacity of Rasgullas. By the time she came home from the hospital... There were already thirty mourners who had descended like ants into her modest living room. They sat drinking pale, sugary chai. Aside from a few sniffles from the toothless old ladies she knew from the local Gurdwara satsang group, the room was still. When she had her audience, she wrenched off her gold bangles, letting them drop to the floor. Her face crumpled like a flower and she began to wail like a siren. The mourners shuffled in their seats, awkwardly, and said nothing. Two of the women stood up to comfort her, cupped her face as in prayer, and pulled a thin white mourning shroud over her head. They led her away from the cloudy eyes of the rubberneckers to drink a glass of water and to wash her face. With empathy hanging on my shoulders like a damp, heavy coat, I held on to her kameez and followed her. In the kitchen... I noted that everything had been organised. A pragmatic neighbour had cooked savourless rice and dal, as is appropriate for such occasions. Sitting at the kitchen table, she considered her late husband. She had married him when she was barely out of her teens, having met him only once, with a chaperone present. She had been instructed by her mother not to be so bold as to even look up at him, but vaguely remembered a flash of bottle-green velvet suit and the reek of spray-on macho. Within a few short weeks of marrying him, she realised he was drunk, neglectful of his work and violent. So she's married a badden, like so many people, but the wonderful thing about this story is the turn. Can you read that little bit? (laughs) She wiped her eyes and blew her nose loudly. Then she got up, and steadied herself, walked over to the refrigerator and opened it. Inside she found a small white Corelli bowl which she pulled out. She helped herself to a spoon from the cutlery drawer and sat sat back at the table. At any other time, the two small rasgullas suspended like pearls in sugar syrup would have been just that, a happy encounter between milk, sugar and rose water, but at that moment her act of eating them seemed absurd, perverse even. The women who had led her, heaving with tears and sighs into the kitchen, watched her uneasily. She lowered the spoon into the first spongy bowl, pierced it, cut off a piece and brought it to her lips. She ate it, turned the spoon upside down and licked its interior curve. Then she brought it back down to the rascula and sliced into it again. She quietly polished off the last bite and didn't bother to drink up the dregs of syrup. Seated, she wiped the stickiness from the corners of her lips, which seemed to curl up in a half-smile. 
I picked up the bowl and started washing up. The women were visibly shocked, born just half a generation after a time when widows were stripped of their property, had their heads shaved and lived out their remaining years like mere dust, they couldn't work out whether she'd gone mad, was wicked and possessed, or whether this was just an insolent act of grief. I remember well those cruel murmurs about her that spread like hospital sheets to the living room where the mourners were still drinking tea. Inside the kitchen, she belched loudly, appreciating the sweetness of new life and new beginnings. <laughs> it's everything that food should be. It's. <laughs> I'm so happy you think that. I had to fight quite hard to keep this essay in. I think everyone thought it was very uh, morose. Really? Um, I think it's I... triumphant. Oh, thank you. You know, I just think it's so important to tell these stories and not all food memories are happy ones. They can be painful. They can be emotionally charged. And this one is. It's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful read. I mean, we haven't even talked about the recipes, but actually, <laughs> you know, the, the essays are a wonderful portrayal of a time gone by. They can never live again. Yeah. You've moved on. You've moved to a completely different community. You're bringing this all together in your restaurant, but it's important to write these things down, isn't it? How, what kind of response have you had from your family? Um, well, they haven't all seen the book yet, um, but it's it's interesting. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I lost my father a few years ago and I write about him a lot. He comes up time and time again, whether I'm writing uh, you know, for a newspaper or in the book. And I think it's a w- it's my way of keeping him very much alive. And I think, uh, you know, I, I was writing about this the other day about how, you know, with all the, the sort of tensions and divides that are going on in the world right now, um, you know, I think back to people like my father and my grandfather who were just incredible pioneers and, you know, migrants who sort of went to, you know, twice moved to, you know, find prosperity for their families and the difficulties that they faced. And actually, when it comes down to it, we are all migrants because we all have to cross that great sea one day and, you know, be migrants in in this other world. And and that in itself brings us all to the same level. We're all equal in that. And uh, so, yeah, I write I write about these people in a way to keep the memory alive, to record it. Of course, memories are also subjective, you know, and that's a tricky thing. Someone might not remember it in that way. But I have been really, really... But you do. I do. It's subjective again, right? Authenticity is subjective. So my my sisters, for example, were different ages. So they might not have seen the nuances that I saw from, from, you know, that sort of tiny space. I talk about that in the Samosa Sisterhood, about lying underneath the the table on the cold sort of stone floor, listening to this grown-up chatter, you know, getting these snippets and then forming my opinions and, you know, creating the world around me with this this sort of grown-up chatter it's a it's a lovely lovely chatter it's a lovely world that you that you give us so thank you very much indeed Ravinda Bogal my absolute pleasure thank you for having me 
Thanks for listening. Do rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to join the mailing list, go to jillysmith.com and sign up. And I'll see you next week as I take you on a Bill and Ted style tour through the history of eating out with restaurant critic and food writer William Sidwell. Thank you.